Is there a legal ramification or what could happen to them if they don't do this correctly? Okay, there are two ramifications. Number one, they're leaving money on the table. Hopefully I got their attention with that, okay? Because <laughs> most of them are cheap and greedy, okay? And I don't mean to offend anybody, that's, but that's how most people are. You're cheap and greedy. So folks, you're leaving money on the table. Yeah. Oh, let me tell you the other thing. You're preventing the whole portfolio from being ripped away from you by an angry, aggressive trial lawyer at Morgan & Morgan or some over-eager enforcement agency officer from CFPB or the Federal Trade Commission or somewhere else because you didn't comply with Dodd-Frank because we've not even talked about the most essential component to these. As always, subscribe and click the notification bell on our YouTube channel. Be active on our Facebook group, East Coast Distressed Note Investing, and be sure to go to our website for all your note investing tools, resources, and available assets. If you have any questions, email us at tradedesk at jkpholdings.com. Hey everyone, good afternoon. Hope all is well. I'm Dave Putz from JKP Holdings. Alongside me, Nathan Turner. How are you, man? Very good, very good. Happy Friday, happy Friday. Hopefully everyone's uh, holiday weekend getting excitingly fun. Hope you have some good plans and spending time with family. Lots of good so, stuff happening this weekend. Before we get jump into all the excitement that we got going on today, which is a big, big event for those who are jumping in, uh, we appreciate it. This will be recorded. It'll be on our podcast, uh, be on YouTube, be on Facebook. We're streaming live on LinkedIn as well as Facebook Live. Mr. Nathan, how you been? Not at all busy. Not at all, you know, things going on. Nothing like that. Everything's been just like super cool boring <laughs> yeah so now we are, we are aware Nathan <laughs> and i will be seeing each other for the first time in a while live and i encourage yes. all those who are watching us and tuning in to please join us in nashville so tell us a little bit more about the conference we got coming up that we're being saved for a few months about yeah this is i am so pumped about this whole conference thing uh so we are one week out today Seven days from today, we will be doing uh, DME live in Nashville. We will have already by this point next week, we have already had our axe throwing championship tournament. We'll see who is the champion axe thrower in the note world. And you will hold on to that title for at least a year until next time that we do that again. We've got so much good stuff, so many good speakers and such great content. I'm really excited for that. Um, yeah, just looking forward to hearing from everybody and seeing what they've got to say. Some people that I've never heard speak before uh, and, and new information for me. And so I'm, I'm really excited to get to be a part of that. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's going to be so much fun uh, on top of great learning. We've been going to conferences for a long time and for a little bit, it kind of gets stale because we just wanted that new information. We've heard some of the speakers speak a hundred times yeah. and every time is great content. This time is a lot different, I feel, because what we're finding out is that we have a lot of note buyers who want assets, and we have a lot of note originators who are probably tuning in today who are excited about, hey, wait, I can cash out my deal, and these note buyers yeah. are not buying it, and we're, yeah. what Nathan's doing is kind of marrying the two. I'm sure a lot of people who watch it regularly, we do this every two weeks, have heard to say, but the marriage is 
awesome. He just the fact we got to communicate better. We can do a ton of business together. I'm really excited about meeting some of these seller finance people and just getting getting to know them because you can meet online, you can do a Zoom meeting, you can do all that stuff. That's all great, but yeah. there's no substitute for in person. You know, shaking hands, looking in the eye, dinner together, whatever it is. We encourage you guys out there if you are a note originator or a note buyer. Um, I put in the Facebook chat. I can put in LinkedIn if you guys need it too. Um, I'm managing multiple screens, so if I look distracted, I apologize. Um, we're just managing all the comments coming through. Um, so what we've developed or talked about last four or five months now is we've been talking to a lot of the big time note originators. Some of those people are probably uh, tribe members of those people tuning in right now with us. We're following the Knicks and the Marks and the, the Bryans and everything else and Dan's out there who are running very large Facebook and social media groups. Talk about subject two, rap notes, seller finance, and learning that aspect. What we're doing now is saying, hey, we'd like to buy your notes as soon as you create them or a few months after. And we'll cash you out and you can redo that and do what you do well over and over again. Yeah. Awesome. And, and the more correctly they're written, the sooner we can buy them and the more money we can pay. And what we're talking today is the fact that if they're not written correctly at all, we're never going to buy the notes. And right. we would hope that you would correct it because you can get into legal as well as morality, as well as business issues. You can lose all your assets if you don't do it right. So we want to make sure that what we know is correct. And what we're going to talk about at the conference as well today is what does that look like, right? So if we talk about performing and someone mentioned a comment about performing, we're talking about performing and not performing notes. We'll buy it. So for those who are new to our channel, our, our lives, me and Nathan have been buying notes since 2010. I think Nathan was before I was. We bought non-performing notes for 10 years. So non-performing notes is what we knew. We're kind of vague on the performing side because there wasn't many back then. So yes, we buy performing and non-performing notes on a regular basis um, nationwide. Yeah. But the conference is going to have a bunch of us there. So we encourage you guys, if you can, we're a week away, go online. I put my link in there just so you can get some tickets for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And use Dave's link and you get a hundred bucks off. Come and join us. Axe throwing. There's still room. It's limited, but there's still a little bit of room there. So make sure you register for that. Uh, space is limited in the venue. So that's, that's the... Uh, limiting factor there is just that they don't have room for everybody, everybody. So make sure you register and get there. And a lot of you guys will see if you're following all the tribe groups, you're going to see a lot of the people you follow and watch regularly on, on the channels speaking on stage. You're going to be able to handshake a lot of people that you really enjoy being around. Yeah. So, well, today is a really big day for me. I felt that, and Nathan, to bring on someone that I respect tremendously who's been around this space longer than I think the two of us together combined. Yeah. And feeling <laughs> the fact that I'm going to uh, hit a button here to start bringing them in here. Uh, Mr. Jeff Watson is someone we respect tremendously. Um, he's someone that can speak the topic. You can feel comfortable around him. He's been doing it for so long. He's comfortable talking to anyone about anything. Um, it's awesome, right? So we are really excited. I brought Jeff Absolutely. Watson to join us. Jeff, welcome. 
Just a wealth of knowledge. Here he comes. It is. It is fun to be here with y'all. It really is. Um, I'm just looking to see how well the stain on my t-shirt shows up. <laughs> it's there. Hey, folks, if you're wondering, I'm real. I am. I am not a stuffed shirt. I am just a just an average, ordinary guy. Okay. So yeah. So it's, Jeff, we usually ask people when they get on here, how'd you begin? How'd you get started with this thing? <laughs> it's a story. <laughs> How did I get started? How did I get started as an investor? How did I fall in love with notes? Yeah. Which, which one do you want? Were you a landlord before? Did you were you a plumber? What were you? Okay. So back in undergrad, I was an undergrad working on a degree in biblical studies, knowing I was going to go to law school, and I was heavily influenced by my favorite uncle on my mom's side of the family. He had never gotten past the eighth grade. He had a little bit of a speech impairment, um, dyslexic. Today, we would label him special needs and so on, but brilliant man, brilliant man. Alive and well to this day, um, he, and his, he and his wife, my favorite aunt and uncle, they had made their first couple million in residential real estate as landlords in Southern California. And then they had moved to Dahran, Saudi Arabia, because he was a brilliant air conditioning refrigeration man. And they he heavily recruited to go over there and run the huge chillers and freezers that they needed there in Saudi Arabia. And he he just one day sat down and just shared what was going on. And it was 1983, 1984. And he had to write a check to the IRS for thirty seven thousand dollars. And he was on a campaign to get his money back. And I listened intently to what he had to say. And at the same time that he's talking about it, my stepdad, uh, the man that my mom was married to most of my, most of my, all my, all my formative life, uh, he made the company says 37,000. That's how much I made last year, you know, on this 1983. So, okay. Um, so I had a quick, you know, moment of which, which guy do I want to listen to? The uncle that never got past the eighth grade that has a little bit of a stutter but is obviously pretty successful as an investor, or do I want to listen to somebody else? Well, I chose to listen to my uncle. And it, it started with understanding how taxes impact investing. That's where I got started. And it just kind of sat there, just quiet, until I got out of law school, had a decent job, had some income, and then we bought our first house. And it was a it was an up and down duplex in Cleveland, Ohio, on the west side, still own that house to this day. And um, started to add another houses portfolio, realized that I needed to get some education. I could not do this all by myself. Being a one-man band, being a lawyer, it was just a bad idea. So I started getting some education, and I sampled from lots of different troughs, lots of different funnels. And I found the ones that really work and the ones that really don't. And, you know, so fast forward, I'm doing this from... I uh, bought my first property in 94, okay? So 10 years later, mm -hmm. I'm sitting in an event in Nashville, Tennessee, and my then spouse elbows me in the ribs saying, hey, go buy this course on short sales. It's something I think we can do together. So on the third, time, the, third, the third time I took a shot in the ribs, I finally got up and went and bought the course. <laughs> And we had some success doing short sales, okay? But it brought me into a circle of influence with 
guys like Greg Clement, who he and I co-founded RealFlow together in 2006, 2007. And um, I recognized that there had to be a completely different way of doing short sales for the back-to-back -back closings. So I, with the help of some really good people at a title company, we brainstormed a way to do it. I papered it all up. And then the marketing engine that Greg Clement knows how to run just took it and it went viral. And so I went from being just, a, just an average attorney in Northeast Ohio, but a guy who knew short sales really well, uh, to now I'm an expert. Okay, now I'm an expert. All right. So, but I'm, I'm going to a point here. Um, I got to the point where I couldn't stand short sales anymore. Particularly after I encountered this guy out of Mississippi, who was then living in Dallas, Texas, who's got this funny accent, but is razor sharp when it comes to notes. And when I understood that I could be the bank instead of the boy standing there with the bowl asking for more porridge from the bank, I was like, forget short sales, I'm buying bad paper because I wanna buy bad paper. So. So we start doing that a little bit. <clears throat> and one of the first deals I did really of significance in, the, in that arena was um, my business partner, who's still my business partner to this day, Greg Clement. He and I co-founded RealFlow. If I haven't mentioned that before, I'll mention it another nine times. Um, he was chasing this one prized property in Brunswick, Ohio. And all of a sudden, the bank, which had had it in foreclosure, decided they had to hit the gas because bank regulators were on them. They needed to get this thing sold. It had been with, a, uh, been with a receiver for a year. There wasn't enough time to do a short sale. So I just approached the attorney representing the bank about buying the notes. Buy the notes, buy the default, buy the judgments, buy everything. We negotiated a price where we bought it at probably a number that would make everybody jealous today. We bought about six and a half million for less than 1.7. Okay. We did this in 2011. Okay. He has turned that property around because I orchestrated it and he, you know, I orchestrated the paperwork and the strategies and Greg executes and Greg is just a great, great communicator with people. Uh, today, we, we shortly backed our way into a favorable deed in lieu of foreclosure that I could get insured and then that led him six months later, get an SBA loan in place. And the SBA attorneys were like, how in the world do you do this? We don't know how you did it, but we're impressed. We can fund this thing. And Greg has now taken this thing that he put 1.7 into, and it's probably worth about 15 million today. And it wow. is a cash cow. And we've done it since then on other stuff. So that's a little bit about how I got into notes. And yeah. then it gets a little more complicated because short sales were getting harder and harder to do. And I don't know if anybody on this call ever remembers countrywide number 10 in the short sale approval letters. And that was the beginning of um, me starting to have to work on policy at the, at the national level. And so number of trips to Capitol Hill, number of meetings with members of Congress. Finally, we got FHFA, which was then chaired by a Republican member of Congress to uh, put their put the weight on Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, and everybody else says, hey, listen, these 90-day, these 180-day short sale restrictions, deed restrictions, verboten, no way. We'll let you restrict it for 30 days, then we can resell, and after 90 days, unlimited, unlimited. So we got that pushed through. Took a few years to get that done. 
Uh, nothing happens fast in Washington, D.C., except posturing in front of a camera. Man, they're in a hurry to do that, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, and I got a lot of guys that I think are friends, good friends of mine, on both sides of the aisle, members of Congress, but whatever. So that got me involved in the politics and the, and the policy issues. And then one day we're there for some meetings and um, a friend of mine, chief operating officer of National RIA says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, we have a meeting at CFPB today. They wanna talk about land installment contracts. Okay. You're coming because you're the expert. <laughs> And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, well, thanks for the notice, let's go. <laughs> so we show up at CFPB and it's a room of like 18 people. There's myself, my friend from National RIA and one other individual I can't remember. And then there's 15 people from CFPB and they start hammering on all the things so that they don't like about land contracts. Who, who don't know what is land stolen contracts and what is CFPB? Because some people have then, no clue what we're talking about. Okay. And what year was this that you sat down with those guys? 15, 2015, 2014. I okay, don't remember. So it's after Dodd Frank has been brought in. It's as Dodd Frank is showing up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Just for some context. All right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Land contract, yeah. contract for deed, land contracts, land, land installment contract, bond for <laughs> deed, contract for deed. All of these different terms where it's, hey, we have a written agreement that you make the payments and at the end, I give you the deed to the property. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And what is CFPB in Consumer Financial Protection Bureau created out of the housing meltdown, yeah. completely woke progressive organization, been operated pretty much by some very powerful liberals. At the time I was there, Richard Cordray, former attorney general of the state of Ohio, was running it, you know. And anyhow, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, with this day-long meeting at CFPB on land contracts, I felt like we walked out of there having shown them that they did not have the regulatory authority that they thought they would have. Okay. Because they ran into this thing that I had to remind them called the Tenth Amendment where every state has the right to regulate things within their own jurisdiction and every state has laws on their books regarding how real estate is bought and sold in their state. Mm -hmm. And land installment contracts, land contracts, bond for deed, whatever you call it, is regulated in every state. There's a statute in there. Mm -hmm. Well, they still wanted to do some things and, I, and I, I heard what they had to say and I agreed with some of their concepts and I'm share some of those concepts today because it applies whenever you're originating any kind of seller financing. These are things that if you do these things, you're going to have two results. You're going to have a better note, you're going to have a better deal, and you're going to have less heartburn later on. So, you know, we'll get into that. Uh, but that's that's a long meandering background on part of my life, you know. And just to just to bring everybody up to speed, I still am involved in Washington, D.C. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. Earlier this week, I was in Columbus, Ohio at the State House. some meetings there. Once again, on housing policy, some stuff going on in Ohio that we've managed to throttle down. I mean, National RIA does more people does more for people than they realize um, on this kind of stuff. 
But uh, last week, my good friend, Congressman Andy Barr out of Kentucky, released a bill. Um, it's another version of the bill we've been working on for years. Vicente Gonzalez, Henry Cuellar, also friends of mine, Democrats out of Texas, and William Posey, Republican out of Florida, immediately jumped on as co-sponsors. It's H.R. 3464. H.R. 3464. It will go into Dodd-Frank and Truth and Lending and the SAFE Act, all three of those obnoxious bills, and find that ridiculously low number of three in mm -hmm. a 12-month period of time and turn the knob from three to 24. Yes. Oh, when, now, when is that happening? So those who are listening right now, and I, I, I hate to interrupt, <laughs> most of you guys don't know anything about the story. You guys are probably originating 15 loans without using any kind of licensing and RMLO and going, what do you mean I can't do that? And Jeff said to get into why we can't do that. But what Jeff's saying now is the rule has been three in 12 months. He's now turned up that volume to be able to do 24. So, but however, if you are creating notes more than three a year, you're violating federal law. So the volume is being yeah. turned up. Yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna get that now. This, we, this is a bill that we have been pushing since 2015 in various forms. Congressman Roger Williams, Republican out of Texas, was the first one to get on board. So we've seen it um, when the Obama administration was in controls when we started on this. Throughout the entire Trump administration, we were so close at one point in time during the Trump administration of getting this bill to move out of the House, out of committee, through the House, off the floor, and get it over to the Senate. And we had a very obstinate, absent, obstinate and absent Republican member of Congress from New Mexico thwart us. And it really frustrating. But the good news now is the lead sponsor on this bill co-chairs a subcommittee on the financial services side, and Republicans control that committee now since it's in the House, and we're going to make this bill move. And I believe we're going to get a Senate companion bill because now previous members of Congress that you sponsor it in the House are now members in the Senate, so we're going to get them to come on board. So we're going to make this thing move, um, get it further than ever before. I feel like instead of being on the 10-yard line with 90 yards to go, I feel like we're probably just outside the red zone now. Wow, that's fantastic. So, yeah. Oh my and it's God. been, guys, this has been eight years of work. Congratulations. Eight years of work to do this. I mean, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Anyhow. Let's back into this that's idea. Huge. Well, you know, this is a huge number. This isn't 12, which we thought we may get into. We doubled what expectations that I thought you had to get to 24. I'm, I'm almost speechless because it just changes the game flow of people um, and regulations and whatnot. For those people who are creating rap notes, creating owner finance notes, what did they have to do before? And what do they have to do after this bill hopefully passes and goes through? What does it change for those investors? Okay, great question. So let me give you some history. Before the housing meltdown and before the Bush administration signed the SAFE Act into law, there was no limitation. There was no federal or state regulation on seller finance transactions. 
on the number, okay? SAFE Act took it from unlimited down to five. But that wasn't good enough. The progressives wanted to take that five and turn it to a misshapen three. Was said, oh, well, you can only do three in 12 months, but the first one you can do this way and the other two you got to do that way and blah, 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 blah. So anyhow, kind of a, it was kind of an eerie moment. I was having a meeting with um, Congresswoman Gwen Moore out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Barney Frank's old office, talking about this bill and why it was written the way it was. It was kind of a kind of a weird moment, but anyhow. And she reminded me, she says, you know, this used to be Congressman Frank's office. And I'm like, okay, appreciate that. But still, let's talk about you supporting this bill because this really matters to inner city buyers. This really matters to urban buyers that the banks, I mean, let's face it, Dodd-Frank has been the greatest discriminatory redlining tool that we have ever seen since the Emancipation Proclamation was enacted. Um, if, if you give you in 30 seconds, what was Dodd-Frank for those people who... We've run into a lot of people, me and Nathan, in the last six, seven months who are creating 80 loans with a checkbook at a local diner, signing it off and going, here, we're going to make a deal with you. They have a mortgage and note, and they have an owner fight. <laughs> I know. They have an owner-occupied member going in, and they've created tens and hundreds of loans, and people watching this feed right now who have are trying to get it through. This is what people were doing in owner-occupied properties. And either they never heard of Dodd-Frank or they heard about it and didn't care. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. So <laughs> I, I can't, we can't turn back time. They've already no. done it. So, yes. okay. so let's, let's talk about where we are and what to do. Dodd-Frank is part of the massive financial regulatory stuff shoved down the throats of regional banks, small banks, private capital holders, all for the benefit of the large, too big to fail banks. It was shoved down our throats as a result of the housing meltdown and financial crisis of seven through 12. Um, it was a sack, it's a sacrosanct piece of, piece of legislation in the eyes of the Democrats uh, because it was enacted during the Obama administration. And it is, it has been a, terrible destroyer of private capital. Now, what we want to do is we want to take the restrictions in Dodd-Frank and we want to lift the volume restriction without changing any of the consumer protections. And I want to be very clear about this. If you are a predator, a financial predator, where you do what I call yo-yo loans on yo-yo houses, Put it out there knowing you're going to get it back. Put it out there knowing you're going to get it back. And in the meantime, you're just grabbing people's down payments and deposits and so on. And you're just basically stealing from them. I have a, I have a simple request of you. Get out. Quit. Beat it. Okay. I just, they, that is what gives our industry such a bad name. Yeah. Instead I want you to focus on doing quality deals. And let me, let me, let's just get into some of the elements of a quality deal. And you guys direct me where we need to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, you need to, and this is some of the bantering and feedback I took back from CFPB where they were pushing hard and I pushed back hard and so on. When you're doing a seller finance deal, 
if you want to really do this thing right to where I feel like you've got a, a note that has got much value, that's got more value on the secondary market than otherwise, here's some of the stuff I want you to do. I want you to have an independent opinion of value of the collateral, a BPO or an appraisal. I want you to have an independent property inspection report. What's the condition of the property at the time of the closing? Let's make sure we're selling good stuff and not a bunch of crap, okay? Those are things that are important. Um, let's use a standardized format for our notes and mortgages. Something standardized where we can look at it quickly and we can see who's the maker, who's making the payment, when's the payment due, how much is the payment, what's the interest rate, What's going on with this? Let's do something standardized and simplified, okay? Let's make sure in addition to that, that we do not self-service these things. Let's board these things with a licensed servicer. When I say licensed, I mean licensed in the state wherein the property is located and where the payor is residing, okay? So that they can collect the payments so that they can send out the appropriate notices, so that they can do the correct communications under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and under RESPA and under TILA and so on. And so that most importantly, they can accurately account for the money because they've got a great software program that based on the day they get the money, they know how to put it into the amortization calculation. They know how much is going to then principal, how much goes to interest, how much is then escrowed for taxes and insurance. So most mom and pops that create them at the diner with their own handwritten stuff, Dave, you know this, Nathan, you know this, they can't do that. No. And then they can report it to the credit bureau reporting agencies. Okay. So, so for those people who we want to make sure that we're focusing on those people who are doing this incorrectly and for the note buyers to understand what they should be doing, when they are creating these notes at the, with a checkbook, and saying, hey, listen, if you have enough money in the bank to put down payment on there, and I'm going to collect it, and I'm going to load it, which we've seen with apartments.com, which is a rental site, the track is payments, and it's free and easy and clear. We all would want them to do it correctly, but why is there a legal ramification, or what could happen to them if they don't do this correctly? Okay, there are two ramifications. Number one, they're leaving money on the table. Hopefully I got their attention with that, okay? Because <laughs> most of them are cheap and greedy, okay? And I don't mean to offend anybody, that's, but that's how most people are. You're cheap and greedy. So folks, you're leaving money on the table. Yeah. Oh, let me tell you the other thing. You're preventing the whole portfolio from being ripped away from you by an angry, aggressive trial lawyer at Morgan & Morgan or some over-eager enforcement agency officer from CFPB or the Federal Trade Commission or somewhere else because you didn't comply with Dodd-Frank because we've not even talked about the most essential component to these deals. And here it comes. Folks, if you're going to originate any sort of seller financing, I don't care if you only do one deal a year, most seller financers do two deals or less a year, okay? I've pulled the data. It's, it's, it's amazing what's out there. Um, you must document, hear that word, document 
which means you've got to collect some written hard copy information and keep it regarding the maker, borrower, buyer's ability to pay, which means you have to underwrite what their financial situation is. What do they make? What's it going to cost them? What's this mortgage payment, a percentage of their income? If you don't have that information, you haven't documented their ability to pay. You have broken the law. And I got Not news for you. Income. I got news for you. That you've created a note that I don't want to touch. It's toxic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Go put it in a nuclear waste landfill because I ain't touching it. Mm -hmm. So if they go to court with this kind of paperwork and they're trying to foreclose because most of these people don't think they'll ever have to foreclose because in the last three, four years, things are performing, right? Yes, thank you, sorry. debt to income and ZTI. What could happen if they go in front of a judge with this paperwork that says the mortgage and note and their down payment and they're tracking it internally and not saying a monthly payments, not saying a yearly statements, and they go in front of a judge when this thing defaults because, hey, listen, the best borrowers in the world can die. They can get sick. Anything can happen. What would a judge do with that asset? Well, there's a couple of things that could happen, and none of them are pretty. <laughs> none of them are pretty. The best case scenario is that they're going to have to go back and actually do a real legitimate loan amortization calculation and really know what's owed because they probably don't have that accurate number. So if you don't have an accurate number, then you don't have really good legal standing to even begin to foreclose. The worst case scenario is that you're going to run into a borrower who contacts legal aid and then either the legal aid attorney or somebody else turns them over to some sort of consumer defense attorney. And boy, if you run into this in the state of Ohio, you're going to go meet a friend of mine and he is, and he's a friend of mine. He is vicious on lenders that don't do it right. Okay. Former attorney general, Mark Dan, that man has a passion for going after unscrupulous lenders and he's dang good at it. Okay. He is good at it. Um, he's collected some large class actions and large multi-million dollar settlements from some of these lenders. He's, he's good at what he does. Okay. Fortunately, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but that's what you're going to run into. And then they're going to basically show how you violated the law and your note is unenforceable and you've got to give back all of the interest that you may have collected and earned. And you might be lucky just to keep the principal. And oh, by the way, you better do a loan modification because don't you dare try and think you're going to foreclose on an illegal and non-compliant note. Yeah. And so now what you've got is you've got a hostile borrower who knows they've got legal leverage over you for the rest of the term of that note and you be screwed. And I don't think it's limited to that one borrower. That attorney now sees the fact you have eight, 10, 12 other properties that you did the same thing. And those borrowers who were performing may get a little more information. They might get phone calls, they might get letters, they might get personal visits just to make sure that their legal rights are protected by that same lawyer that's already taken to the woodshed once. Yeah. So, and then for the little guys that are doing two a year, are they untouchable because I'm too small? No, they're not untouchable, but they're a lot, they're a lot safer. Okay. If you're doing three or less, you don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. Right. 
except being able to prove that you've documented the ability to pay. Yeah. And that's a mathematical, I talk a lot of people, well, yeah, I saw that money in the bank. I saw their bank statements. It's good, right? There's an actual formula that's done to prove the ability to repay. You can look it up. There's a yep. formula. Please, who are watching YouTube, LinkedIn, whatever you're watching it, and this is why we brought Jeff on. If you don't do this, it can kill your business. So not only do you need to do the formula, but you need to keep the information that you use to calculate on the formula. Hmm. You need it. So flat out, I'm going to just tell you what you've described is the guy that does these deals at the diner table. They probably never collected a loan application. Right. They probably never verified employment. They probably never verified credit. They probably never verified anything. They have no idea how many other payments they've got. They have no idea what their debt to income ratio is. They have no idea what their overall debt service looks like. They've got no clue. And I'm going to put it like this. I'm going to, I'm going to be very straight. You are doing yourself, the borrower, and our industry a huge disservice when you do one of these deals with somebody who really can't afford to pay. Mm -hmm. I consider you to be a form of a thief, a white collar criminal. That's that, yeah. And hey, I'm, I'm probably being a little harsh and I don't care. It's my opinion, sue me, I don't care. <laughs> I wouldn't sue him, be honest with you, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and and I, I, I'm not looking for you to exactly, I'm actually Googling it myself. Do you know the actual number of DTI, the ability to repay number? I thought it was around 47 or 43. What is, do you remember what that number is? Off the top of my head, no. But I know I'm sure some of are, are feeble. I see yeah. three, I see, you know, so yeah. I'm sure someone figured it out for me. If you oh, guys yeah. post it, appreciate it. You guys, but, there's. You guys have collected some brilliant nerds. They probably have that number right on their fingertips <laughs> and they can send you links to all that stuff. And I got it. Great. You know, that's well, not my you job. Suggested, we had a live call. We have a, for those who don't know, we have a private mastermind group where we talk on Wednesday. And Jeff was on a couple weeks ago. Thank you, Sal. 38 to 43. You suggested not to go to the top, right? Don't, yes. if the number's 43, don't go to that 43 number. Go below it to make it appear that something goes bad. Hey, listen. I didn't hold them to the highest level. I gave them margin. I gave them room to breathe. How many of you are guys and you've had to wear a collared shirt buttoned so tightly to wear a necktie that it's hard to swallow or breathe and you feel like you're choking? That's what you're doing to a buyer homeowner when you max out their, L when you max out their DTI. Right. Okay. And here's the thing. This is this is one of these things that gets me a little fired up because there's a little bit of truth to it, but then it gets contorted. And let me explain. When you offer seller financing on a quality property, did I say quality property? Yes, I did. And I meant it. Not some piece of junk that you wouldn't live in. Okay. But when you offer seller financing on a quality property, yes, it has a greater value to some extent, but don't get greedy and stretch it all the way out because it doesn't have that, okay? Or sell it don't above market greedy. value. 
Pardon me? Or sell it above market value just because you're offering terms. Yeah, that's wrong. I've seen that's that. Me, that's no. wrong. I, that's I wrong. agree. Could you, if someone sold it, say a property worth 200,000, they sold for 205 or 210, where is that line? Are you saying flat 200? No, I'm saying if the if the marketplace says that it's worth 200, if I go get a traditional bank loan and all that other stuff, fine. I'd push it to maybe 205, 27, leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. I think it's worth I think it's worth a you know a three to five percent bump and that's about it. Sure. But it's so not we have, worth more than that. So yeah. we have a lot of people doing this the incorrect way, and a lot of them don't know, right? Because they're being taught by people that we won't make comments about right now, doing right. Teaching about just doing it and just getting involved. We hope that those people can collectively get together. But yeah. you know, these people who have been creating land contracts, maybe that's all they can actually have to get underwritten, which they do, right? Or creating notes or mortgages, right? So when they're creating these things and they've done it incorrectly, for those who are watching and listening, what should they do right now with those old notes? Because they may be getting scared right now. So if they've done something that was sloppy or incorrect, there's the first thing you have to decide. The first thing you have to know is, did you do it because you did too many without using an RMLO or did you do it because you just used bad paperwork and you're only doing two a year? Because if you only did two a year or three a year or less, then okay, that's a different, easier fix, mm -hmm. okay? Go back and modify the deal collect a new loan application, get document their ability to pay and modify the deal and do a modification and restart the clock, so to speak, okay? That's the way to clean that up. If you did more than three a year, then you're gonna have to go back and do that modification, but you're gonna have to run every one of those borrowers through an RMLO to make sure that they have verified their ability to pay. And then go back and modify the paperwork, modify the terms and restart it with standardized documentation. And I would tell you, if it was me and I was representing you, I would say, give them a couple thousand dollars off principle mm -hmm. in exchange for them signing a release and waiver for any previous discrepancies or errors in the earlier version of the deal you did with them. A thousand bucks or or half percent off? I'd give them something, something that's something. material consideration. Right. Okay. Something that not not 20 bucks, right. and not 20,000. Yeah. Okay. Somewhere it's a couple thousand dollars that's like, hey, you weren't harmed. You didn't miss a payment. I've not cheated you, but yeah. Thank you for your cooperation. This is one of the other documents we need to sign is a release and release and hold harmless for anything in the past. You know, I'm going to not chase you for anything. You're not going to chase me for anything. We're going to start with a fresh slate because I'm aware that now I've got to do this a little bit better and I've got to prove that you're making the payments. And oh, by the way, now I've got to ship this note over to a servicing company mm -hmm. and they're going to be the ones now collecting your payments because now they're going to be timely, correctly calculating the payment and the amortization, and they're going to be the one reporting your timely payments to the credit bureau. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fixable. All those things, well, for the most part, it's fixable. Um, but it's, it's going to take some time. as long it's as everybody's still friendly. Right. If they're friendly, it's fixable. Right. Now, if it's not friendly, 
it's still fixable, but it's going to cost you. I had a okay. client that bought a paper, bought paper in Pennsylvania that wasn't originated correctly. The attorney general's office got involved. Mm -hmm. The attorney general's office cut him a little bit of a slack because they realized he wasn't the guy that was the bad actor. It was the person before him. Yeah, it still cost him. He had to give up like ten, fifteen thousand dollars in equity. You know, redu reduce principal by ten or fifteen grand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, okay. how many people listening to are, are buying subject twos, right? And then wrapping the note. It's a little bit different conversation than the owner finance. What is your thought on that process? Which, I, from my understanding, you're fine with subject twos. But then talk about that part. And then the part B is, I want to buy that wrap note. Can I do it? And what would you suggest me buying it at a legal point of view, what I should or should not be doing? Wow. <laughs> we have 15 minutes. <laughs> we have how much time? 15 minutes, right? Okay. So, yeah. Cause yeah, I've got a lunch date with my daughter in like 18 minutes. So I got, yes. okay. okay. So first of all, I'm a fan of subject to done correctly. Okay. I'm a big fan of it done correctly. I'm not a fan of the way it's being taught by other people out there. And uh, there's some people that are, I'm just going to say this. There's one guy running around that did it in the past and let 108 of them go to foreclosure and screwed up 108 different families' lives because he wasn't a person of his word, okay? Mm -hmm. That person should not be teaching subject to ever again, in my opinion, until he makes all 108 people correct, makes them whole. Uh, there's other people who are brilliant marketers that have not got the experience in the industry to really understand what they're doing. And I watch them. They parrot what some of the experts who are clients of mine say. My client says that on Monday, they're parroting, they're parroting it, you know, repeating it on Thursday. So let's get into this. Um, there's something I like being done in the subject to space, and there's something I really despise in the subject to space. I'm going to talk about what I despise first. When you get a property under contract and then you sell it or assign it to somebody else for them to step in your shoes as the sub two buyer and they pay you some money and then walk away and you walk away. Okay. Ixnay, I don't like it. You have taken a struggling homeowner, put them in contact with somebody else that doesn't have the same depth, experience, and knowledge that you should have, should have, and now you're the only one that's profited out of the deal and you're out. Bad. I've decried this in the past. There's a guru out of Texas that has sued me over it, didn't have the guts to get me served, but he just filed a lawsuit, you know, impugning my name, but whatever. It didn't matter, you know. So I've been, on, I've been against that method for a long time. What I do like is if you're in this business and you're acquiring subject to and you want to resell, I want you to resell on a wrap all-inclusive basis because you're fully disclosing what is the underlying debts that you're selling it subject to. Mm -hmm. You're fully disclosing the difference between the two. Okay. So yes, part of the financing on this is that we, Bank of America is still owed $489,000 on this $700,000 house, and I'm getting paid the difference. But when we sell it on a wrap, we're doing it in a way that legally and from a tax standpoint is the most compliant because we stay in the middle of the deal. We stay in the middle of the deal. Now, these are things that you set them up right, 
These are like crock pots. You can just set them and forget them and the money shows up every month if you do it right. And I'm a big fan of that, okay? I'm a big fan of money showing up every month, whether I got out of bed or was in the States or not, okay? I'm a big fan of that. Um, so that's what I like. Now, later on down the road, can you resell that? Can you resell that position? Yes, you can. But whoever's buying it, it better understand and better be smart enough to understand, well, how did you underwrite the deal? Mm-hmm. What's been the payment history? And oh, by the way, the underlying debt, yeah, that means I'm still going to be, I'm going to be stepping into this thing where I now have a moral responsibility to make sure that underlying debt is paid. That gives you some pause and makes you want to think about when you want to step in and buy these things. I wouldn't even think about it until I've seen a couple of years, really good pay history on it. Then I'd be like, okay, so we got the bank loan that we bought subject to is just purring along. Everybody's happy. They're taking their payments, auto rip. Great. Love it. And my end buyer who's occupying the property, who I underwrote, who qualified, clearly can make the payments. We're good there. They've got a pay history of 24 months. Okay, great. Now let's talk about maybe I'm going to sell a partial off of it. Maybe I'm going to sell the whole thing. But boy, I better be prepared to fully disclose everything in the deal. All of the disclosures that I made between the seller and I, all of the disclosures and arrangements between the buyer and I, the whole bit, you better be able to lay it all out because if you can't, Ixnay, it's 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 a it's a bad deal. You better you better shepherd it across the rest of the line instead of stuff. Open this all stuff in trust when you do a subject two. How would you regulate that? Put that subject two situation that it's okay. Yeah, yeah I love using trust and subject two. In fact, I taught a class on that last night. Um, and you know, so anyhow, I will always set it up where I form a trust. I, as the investor buyer, will form a trust. I will be the trustee. I'm going to then buy the property subject to as the trustee of that trust. That trust is owned by my buy and hold multiple member LLC. That then means that the LLC gives me the asset protection and gives me the financial backing for that trust. I'm not personally obligated now, but I'm staying in the deal. I have a real problem with doing deals and then stepping out of them and not being involved anymore where there's somebody, you know, where the sellers who sold the property, Fred and Wilma sold me the property subject to, I want to stay in that deal for as long as I'm paying First National Bank of Bedrock. Mm-hmm. Once First National Bank of Bedrock is gone, oh, well, then that's a lot easier deal for me to feel comfortable about reselling somewhere else. And so we then, go ahead and... Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, I want to I want to buy a wrap loan, but I don't. First of all, I I'm a first guy, so I want to be in first position just out of principle, if nothing else. Yeah, well, then you got to get rid of First National Bank of Bedrock. Right. So, in I mean, I could just do that, right? Like I could just buy the wrap loan included in my price is paying off the underlying first. Yep. And then that puts me in the first position. Everybody's. You know, it's just a far simpler structure. And I know mind. a lot of people we talked to over our call Wednesday was why you give up a great situation where the first national bank is at three, two, four percent, and you want to pay it off. Can you talk about the legal side? I don't know if it's legal, more morality, but I'm with Nathan, like may, may not make financial sense to give up three percent cash, right? 
However, we didn't make that agreement with the 72 borrower at that time. Can you speak a little bit about that? So and besides yeah, yeah. it's 3% plus I'm paying my investors. So it really doesn't make sense. If it's my own money, maybe. But if I'm borrowing money to go and buy notes in the first place, then the borrowed money plus what I'm paying to the underlying bank of bedrock, then it doesn't make sense. Maybe math-wise, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but otherwise uh -huh. it does. Okay. So I took down some subject to stuff about a year and a half ago. And one of the underlying debts was a loan being serviced by Wells Fargo. Now, I'm doing well right now to say the name and not have a nervous tick because I just despise that institution. One of the first things I did is I just found the extra cash and I got rid of them yeah. because I just don't like them. I don't trust them. I believe that Wells Fargo lies every time they move their mouth. Okay. I just want nothing to do with them. Yeah. So was it from, a, from an arbitrage math sense? Did it make sense? No. From a avoiding a hassle and headache sense, from from limiting people that can yap at me and dogs that can bite me, it made a lot of sense. Okay, and so this is one of the things that I, some of you, some of you loving, I love some of you note nerds, but you only look at the math and you only look at your calculator and you don't look at the human dynamics, and you got to look at both. You got to look at both, and getting rid of a pain in the neck bank lender is worth it. I mean, I will readily pay eight and 9% to a private lender instead of six or 7% to an institution. But how about the fact that borrower, you made a promise to as the, the original subject to buyer, now I'm going to buy the note. They didn't make a guarantee that I'd make the payments, right? Right. Is there a legal thing or is that more of a morality thing you would say? That is a moral thing because there is, because when I buy sub two, I make it very clear. I'm not promising I'm going to make your payments, but at the same time, I'm proving to you, Hey, based on the amount of money I gave you for your equity, both down and in payments. And based on the amount of money I put in to continue to maintain and run these properties as rentals, it would be financially irresponsible of me to not make the payment. Right. It would be just, why don't I, why don't I just go pile the money up in the bank, hit it in the driveway, hit it with the lighter fluid and flick a match on it and go, poof. Can you legally transfer a power of attorney that you did in the first situation to the new loan buyer? Yeah. No, a power of attorney cannot be transferred or assigned. So, but go back to what Nathan talked about. You want to buy that deal in the secondary market, yeah. go ahead and fund it with enough money when you buy it to get rid of the institutional debt. Then the seller's gone. Their debt's gone. The deed's been out of their name. They're gone. You don't right. need a power of attorney anymore for them. You don't right. need anything out of them anymore. They're gone. They're out. Yeah, yeah that's that's the only way that I would want to do that. I, I don't want to- It's a smart attached. way, Nathan. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be attached and it's too messy. People. Yeah, and we got a lot of feeds uh, back, uh, some questions, all that stuff. Um, I put in the chat too. You can, uh, we have a little form you can fill out, and if you're looking to get a hold of Jeff and learn more about the stuff he does at classes, um, he's not bringing it up. Not that we asked him to, but he wants to focus on giving content today, uh, which Jeff has always done. I've run into situations that Jeff bailed me out of because I didn't know. 
And that happens to everybody out there. And that's why Jeff's around. Yeah. And Dave, I don't even remember what it was. I mean, whatever it was, <laughs> it was. I'm glad 15 I or 16. And it was literally sitting in the uh, Node Expo, I think it was. It, and I came just for that fact that I want to learn about us. It was self-directed IRA stuff and didn't know a partner could be disqualified participant and he fixed it for me. So guys, we all walk around thinking we know everything mm -hmm. and we, we believe we learned everything. But sometimes you haven't. And we realize that as investors that we always, there's always something we learn and we grow. So we encourage you guys not to only do this for legal sense, which we've talked about today, but morality sense of, listen, can you sleep tonight knowing what you're doing, right? And if you can't sleep or if you're a person who just does this normally, it's going to come back to haunt you. It happens, I promise you. So um, I appreciate those people <clears throat> in the feed who are answering questions while we're just negotiating that. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And always learning is a key thing. Um, and you don't want to value your time. We're, we're going to just take it three minutes. So I'm going to ask you one question, and Nathan always going to ask the last question. Um, so if, are you be speaking anywhere soon? Or I know we have the uh, link inside. The Once you fill out the form, you're going to get all your information. Are you be speaking anywhere soon that people can be coming to or see you? I'm trying to think. We're hitting. We finally hit the summertime. Um, my brain is a little numb because I just got done with a 40-day stretch of pretty constant, pretty much constant travel, where I couldn't even remember some days what day of the week it was, or what city I was in, or what I was supposed to talk about that day. Um, so I've wrapped that up. Um, I don't have anything on the horizon right now. Um. I know where I'm going to be next. I know the next events I'm going to be at as an attendee learning is going to be uh, an acquisitions class in Tampa, Florida, being taught by Pete Fortunato. Cool. I'm going no to be one there for is, that. Please look them up. Pardon me? If no one knows who Pete is or don't hire is. Please look them both up. You better look them up. I mean, yeah. both those guys are good friends of mine. I've, they're, they're brilliant men. Brilliant men. Um, I've, if you're if you're curious about what I'm teaching, I'm doing a lot more stuff virtually and online. So go ahead and register for my email newsletter, and I will be emailing you and sending you, hey, when I'm going to do a, a free to attend Zoom on whatever, like I did one last night on using trusts, a primer on using trusts in subject to and creative finance deals. I walk through what does a trust look like, how does it operate, how do you set it up, what do you do with it, mm -hmm. and so on. I walked through all that last night for about an hour and just you know go for that and i do that i do that maybe once a month stuff we have like about that a minute left before you have lunch with your daughter my man so i'm gonna ask nathan ask the last question and we'll wrap up with live and we'll just cover a few minutes with you go ahead nathan what's your so well first i'll, I'll suggest that one uh, a little bit further out in the horizon we missed out on having you idea me this year but we'd love to have you next year make sure you check out absolutely DME. it's a uh no group uh, note investing conference for note engineers and buyers um, happening next week. It's in the comment thread. I'll put it back up there. Who in Nashville next week? Next can, week. Where in Nashville? Where in Nashville? It's the Hilton uh, by the airport. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nashville. Nashville's a great place. I I really like yeah. the city of Nashville. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. We're very much looking forward to it. All right, Nathan. You got a question? Yeah. So where do you see with everything that you're seeing and included? in that with uh, your visits to DC and everything, what do you see coming up on the horizon? Where's where's the economy going? Where's the housing market going? What's your crystal ball? 
I'm going to give you some stuff that probably no one else will say. Okay. Um, we have a war being waged against private capital. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for small mom and pop institutions to compete in this market. It's making it hard on community banks and regional banks. That's one of the things going on. Um, the Fed is still fixated on unemployment and doesn't feel like they've got unemployment high enough yet to where they can back off on raising rates. So I expect to see rates go up. Mm -hmm. I expect to see more and more consumers get literally tapped out where they can't handle it. So keep an eye on uh, credit card delinquencies. Keep an eye on auto repossessions. When those start to move up higher, then we know we're really going to go into a bad problem. Um, I would tell people, keep some powder dry because there's going to be some great deals. In fact, I'm working on a great deal right now um, because the market's freezing. We've got a bunch of investors standing around like deer in the headlights. And now is one of those times. This is one of those key times to buy is when no one else knows what to do, act decisively. If it's a great deal, if it underwrites well, grab it. Okay. Um, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see a very interesting situation. We're going to see, we're still dealing with what happened three years ago. Mm -hmm. When the federal government began jamming trillions of dollars out of thin air into the economy. We're Agreed. still dealing with the ramifications of that when it relates to the labor force, supply chains, inflation, housing costs, stock market, the whole bit. I mean, it, everything got distorted by the trillions of dollars that got shoved in there. Yeah. Um, we're still we're trying to figure out how that's going to sort itself out. The Fed has no clue what it's doing, in my humble opinion. Um but that's just my humble opinion because they're using a bad system based upon faulty demographics. Um, I would tell you that we're going into a very interesting period of time where we're now going to find out who really is an investor and who was just a tag along enjoying the falling interest rate rising market. Were you a buy and breather? Or are you an investor? And the area that's going to get hammered the hardest, the fastest, is going to be the wholesaling industry is just, it's its going to its knees right now. Mm -hmm. um, residential apartments, they're freezing up. There's some great deals out there. I'm going after one right now. But there's a lot of people who are scared to death and don't know what they're doing. And that Wall Street Journal article earlier this week was not a kind article. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, just perpetuating fear. Yeah. The next thing out there is if you've got good deals with good people on your seller finance stuff, be prepared to work with them on modifications if they get in trouble. Stay in touch with them. Make sure that they know that they can reach out to you because it's going to be relationships that are going to get us through this bumpy spot. Um, Holding houses too because it's going to trickle down eventually. Oh, I. Even with this great underwriting we've been doing for 10, 12 years now. It's still people are going to default. Yeah. And people are not going to default because we made bad loans. People are going to default because the economy pulled the rug out from underneath their feet. Because Congress spent way too much money in the last three years. And that includes two, that includes not one, but two different presidents in that time frame, by the way, folks. So don't think I'm being I'm being <laughs> a bad on one guy. Okay. Um, this debt ceiling issue is going to be an interesting thing to watch. I think that's going to give us a big clue as to who really who really is going to control things going forward. Mm -hmm. I pray that Speaker McCarthy stands firm 
He's got a house. He's got the house majority behind him. That's going to not back down. Um, he's got some moderate, moderate Democrats. that are going to come with him on this stuff. The question is, will reality sink in in the administration and the people like Pelosi and Schumer? That's where we've got to see will reality sink into their heads that we cannot continue to spend like drunken sailors. Yeah. Wow. Well, Jeff, I'm gonna let, right. we're going to let go of the live feed right now. We'll wrap up with you for 30 seconds and uh, let you go do your lunch. We appreciate you having on, having you on our live feed here. It's my pleasure. I've enjoyed this conversation and time flew, man. Time flew. Thank you so much. Thank you.